So I'm not asking you because I'm taking attendance. Um, uh, how many of you were here last week? How many of you were not here last week? Oh boy, okay. <laughs> okay, and I'm sorry I was cryptic about the dismissal of the kids, but if you weren't here last week, sparks were flying. Not necessarily in the way that you might think. Because last week we began the first part of our exploration of what is perhaps the most underread, overlooked, and often ignored parts of the Bible. And that's a book called The Song of Songs. And I'd like you to open up to that book right now with the Bible that you brought with you. The Bible that's there in the pew, you turn to page 472. Or if you have your phone on the YouVersion Bible app, it'll open up right there for you. The Song of Songs is the title of this book, and it's part of the wisdom section of the library. That's what we're focusing on this summer, the wisdom portion of the scriptures. And the title is, in fact, a Hebrew idiom for a superlative. And if you're not really up on your grammar, um, other examples of what I'm talking about of this kind of grammatical construction in the Bible are Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Holy of Holies. The, what I'm trying to help you to see is the intended emphasis of the title of this book is to underscore in the midst of all the accumulated wisdom by Solomon, this is the song of all songs, the one surpassing all others. And as we discovered last time, part of why it's unread and often ignored is the greatest song of all time speaks of things that tend to make us blush. This song celebrates the tender beauty and rapturous joy of love, marriage, and yes, sex openly expressed between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Song of Songs declares and describes scenes and details between two lovers that most of us are too modest to talk about out loud, let alone in church. Reading this book, as we talked about last week, requires a certain level of maturity as well as some orientation, because if you've glanced at this book at all, even just looked at it, following the Song of Songs can feel a bit disjointed and confusing. But as I said last week, we have to remember as we look at this book, the lyrics of this song are momentary glimpses into a relationship. Better to think of them as love notes rather than a full-blown love story. Last Sunday, we looked in the first part of this series, we bravely attempted to understand the book as a whole in order to appreciate the wisdom that it can still offer us. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to close out the second half of our look at this book. We're going to close out our time in Song of Songs by briefly reviewing what we learned last week. So those of you who weren't here, good for you. And for those of you who, weren't, who were here, just a refresher of the foundation that we established. And after we review briefly what we learned last week, we're going to go a little deeper and perceive something more in this unique book. And then I'm going to reflect on a very important takeaway for us. But before I go further, I want to establish the same ground rules as I did last week. Okay? The first is, I want to give you full disclosure this morning. I'm going to be frank in my consideration of this book, but I am not going to be graphic. However, I recognize that everybody's sensibilities are different. I recognize that the people who are present, may, you, someone maybe you brought with you may not be ready for this. So I ask you to judge your readiness accordingly. And there's no shame if you opt to go get coffee and a donut at this time. <laughs> Second, we are not going to have fear this morning. We are not about guilt and shame in our conversation about love, marriage, and sex. This is an intended to be, as I hope last week was, just an honest but encouraging, a true but inspiring reflection on this book. And my hope and prayer, finally, as it was last week and it continues into this week, is that this sermon, as much as last week, will lead to 
open and healing conversation in our community. We have a tendency, as I mentioned as the church last week, not to talk about sex, and that's really sad, not to talk about love. And it's sad because if God isn't afraid to talk about love and sex and marriage, we shouldn't be either. And this will spark questions. This will spark conversation. And as I did last week, I want to make myself available. If you want to talk to me personally, or you want to talk to me in a group, or take me out to lunch or to dinner, doesn't mean you have to buy me lunch or dinner. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not what I meant. I'm more than happy to be a part of a larger conversation, as this definitely leads to further conversation. Okay. So, to begin this morning, I want to give you another brief sampling of this romantic mixtape. And you'll remember I used the analogy of a mixtape because back in my day, when you, you liked another person and were falling in love with them, that's what you did. You made a mixtape. And that's kind of a way to think of this as these two lovers write their own songs back and forth to each other. So, I want to give you a little sampling of it. And last week, I read to you from the beginning of this collection. So, today, I thought it was appropriate to read you an excerpt from the end of this anthology. So, you're opened up to Song of Songs, chapter 8. Let me just give you a brief sampling of, again, this mixtape by reading to you, and this is primarily she who is speaking rather than he. And we'll start in verse 4. She says, Daughters of Jerusalem, friends, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. The friends then respond, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And she says to her lover, to him, Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, as I said, we're going to start with a brief review of what we covered last week. I want to just say from the outset, this is a brief review. If you want to get in more detail to what I'm about to share, I encourage you, if you weren't here or if you haven't, to go back and to listen and watch that sermon. But a quick review of where we were, what we discovered last time. Last week, we learned the presence of this song in the Bible is nothing, is nothing, is, is much more, is nothing less, sorry, than a divine affirmation of the essential elements of romantic love between a man and a woman. We learned four things. Romantic love, as reflected in the Song of Songs, is indeed physical. It involves our bodies, and it involves our bodies not with fear or shame, but with anticipation and even joy in the sensual. The woman in the excerpt we just read, if your Bibles are still open, is speaking to her lover, and let's be honest, what she's recounting is a scene of lovemaking. What she shares is a bit steamy, and I won't do this. Oh, I just did, and embarrassed my children again. It's a little steamy. She literally says, as you heard here, that she aroused him under the apple tree, and the apple tree is significant. The apple tree has been used in this poem, and it's used in other literature as an erotic image. It's a place that provides shade and cover and privacy. Together, they have found a place to be tender and intimate together. The apple tree is also a symbol of fertility, which may explain what this wife says to her husband that may sound a little strange to our ears, where she says that this is the same place where he, her lover, was once conceived. The implied hint may be that she herself wants to get pregnant. The point is what is explicit here as throughout the poem, once again, is this lyrical, passionate, and eloquent love song celebrates 
doesn't hide from, isn't ashamed of, but celebrates our human sexuality as a marvelous and beautiful gift of God. God is not prudish about sex, in other words. God created and therefore endorses the joy of sex between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. So the first thing we see in this book is that romantic love is indeed physical, but there were three other things we also saw, that romantic love is more than just physical. It is physical, but it's more than just physical. It's also total. That means longing for and appreciating not just the exterior, the outer appearance of our intended, but being attracted to and respecting their inner person, the fullness of their character. Love is physical, but love is total. Love is also mutual, we see in this song. There is a reciprocal shared union of give and take, rather than the assertion of power or dominance of one partner over another. Love is physical, love is total, love is mutual. And ultimately, romantic love is designed to be exclusive. Attraction may prompt the beginning of a relationship, but it's commitment that sustains a relationship. The trust, in other words, that's needed, the intimacy sought between the physical, total, and mutual union of two lovers can only be fully and completely realized in a lifelong commitment, the covenant of marriage. These final three ingredients, love being total, love being um, mutual, and love being exclusive, we see all of these ingredients of romantic love attested to by the woman as she declares to her man in verse 6, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal upon your arm. That simple sentence is difficult for us to understand what she's asking of him unless we know what a seal is. And what a seal was, you would mark something with a seal to claim it as your own. So in essence, the woman is asking the man to allow her to possess him, to give himself to her totally and completely. She doesn't just want his body. She wants his soul. She wants his personality. She wants to know what makes him tick. Romantic love is physical, but romantic love is total. And keep in mind, this woman is saying these, this pretty intense stuff to the man. And what I mean is by hitting that is back in that day, this would have been surprising culturally for a woman to come on so strongly to a man. And yet, within this biblical love song, we don't see a hierarchical relationship where the woman knows her place and the man has his. The husband and wife belong to each other. The two of them are equals in seeking each other out, in giving themselves to each other, and in sharing their passion for one another. Romantic love is physical. Romantic love is total. Romantic love is mutual. And what makes the caliber of the, their love that they're aiming for even possible, let alone workable, is their intent, their promise to be devoted to each other. The woman wants the man's heart to be sealed she wants all of him and offers all of herself to him. This is an invitation and a promise, both a declaration and a demand for a wholehearted and loyal commitment to each other. Romantic love is physical. Romantic love is total. Romantic love is mutual. And romantic love is exclusive. And you notice, if you kept reading with me, how the woman goes on in the next few verses here in chapter 8 to illustrate the weighty, intensity of romantic love. She uses these metaphors to show how intense romantic love is. She describes it as being as strong as death, its jealousy as unyielding as the grave. And what is being teased out in the Song of Songs, not just here but repeatedly, is romantic love has the amazing ability to strengthen and unify two people in the confines of an exclusive commitment. But outside of that covenant, such love is also powerful enough to destroy, to hurt. God knows, in other words, the Song of Songs reminds us, God knows the power of love between a man and a woman. He knows it because, after all, he created it. 
The trinity of romantic love established by the Lord, affirmed by the Song of Songs, therefore, is love leads to marriage and marriage leads to sex. The covenant of marriage, if you will, is what the Lord established for us as the fireplace for letting the flames of love roar, but through a focused and controlled blaze. When, as we talked about last week, we reverse that paradigm, when we, instead of looking at it in terms of love leads to marriage, leads to sex, and instead we reverse it and say, no, sex leads to love, to marriage, maybe. We don't achieve real intimacy. We sabotage it, in fact. We sacrifice it for a momentary climax of connection that ends in the morning or when the thrill is gone. Someone, in other words, when we reverse the paradigm, always gets burned by this fire of love. The truth is, as we ended last week, casual sex is a misnomer. Casual sex is a misnomer. Sex is so much more than physical. It is profoundly spiritual. It isn't just a mingling of bodies. It is the mingling of souls. We live more and more in a world that is about using sex, but when we use sex to look for love, inevitably it leaves us more exposed, but less truly known. It may give it, make us temporarily satisfied, but in the long term we'll end up feeling more isolated and alone. God didn't create sex for us to use. He created sex for us to enjoy. And his desire, as we talked about, is for us to experience holiness. And holiness means God wants us to experience the kind of deepening, unbroken intimacy we were created for. To know and be known, to be utterly loved, to be united to another person. And the truth is, contrary to how we often think about it, and even sometimes talk about it, we can be holy and sexual at the same time. Not only can holiness and sexuality go together, they must go together if we are to truly flourish, to find the love we hunger for, to find the relational intimacy we seek. So in sum, we learned last week that the Song of Songs is an affirmation of romantic love and human sexuality as marvelous, sensual, beautiful gifts of God. And these powerful gifts are to be celebrated, but also respected in their capacity to build up and bless us rather than tear down or hurt by being actualized in the lifelong commitment of marriage. This is the foundational understanding that was laid last week. I needed to review it to make sure it really, we really got it. Because it's with this foundational understanding, when we get this about the Song of Songs, we can now look deeper and see something even more incredible within this book. What I'm about to show you both dramatically underscores what we've already learned together, everything I just said. It's going to underscore everything I just said, but it's also going to open our eyes to an even greater reality about our relationship with God. But before I go there, I have to ask, and if you weren't here last week, you're out of the, in the clear. Those of you who were here last week, how many of you actually read this book? Oh, good Lord. People, read the book. <laughs> Get off the dime. Read the book. You need to read this book because I can tell you, but one, you shouldn't just take my word for it, but two, what I'm about to share with you, you can't appreciate unless you look at this book and wrestle with it yourself. You're missing out. You're missing out, and maybe, maybe that response is, again, part of why it gets so overlooked. i got to work harder, I guess, at my job to convince you here. <laughs> For those of you who didn't read the book, from the little I shared now, and if you were with us, the little I shared last week, or even if you just thumbed through, you can't help but notice something that stands out in these love songs, and that is the pervasive use of garden imagery. 
As these two lovers pursue, play, and embrace each other in poem after poem, their relationship together both unfolds and is described, you can't miss this, in terms of a lush paradise of blooming flowers and babbling waters that surround them. Lilies and roses, we are told, burst forth in triumph over the, the thorns of the ground. Fawns and gazelles frolic unafraid through the meadows and the pastures. The man and the woman sit and lie back in the thick shade of trees, feasting on its pickings of sweet fruit and enjoying each other. They abide together, naked and without shame, in a garden, in harmony with one another and with all creation. Kind of reminds us of another story in the Bible where two lovers are in a garden, doesn't it? Light bulbs starting to come on? The overall picture of the Song of Songs takes us back to the beginning to the very opening pages of our story, the opening pages of Genesis, where the first man and the first woman, do you remember how they were described? Were at first naked and felt no shame as they became one flesh. In taking us back to the Garden of Eden, this love song is a reminder of how things used to be, of relationships as they were meant to be, untainted by selfishness and sin, where once we could be naked, and naked doesn't just mean physically naked, it means fully transparent, where we could be transparent and vulnerable with each other and yet still be safe and unified. The Song of Songs is this powerful looking back, but it's so much more than that. As we look even closer, we see the Song of Songs is not just given to us as a flashback of what once was, of what God intended for us, we look more closely, it is also a vision of what can, of what God promises will be. Here in this seemingly risque collection of poetry that most of us are clearly too embarrassed to read, or busy, is an image of the future. It's an image of the future, of the realized potential and untapped wonder of human relationships. Here, not in the Garden of Eden, but here in the Garden of Life as we know it, we catch a glimpse of a time when the long, bleak, dead days of winter are past and springtime is on the rise. There are no thorns or thistles here. Here we see a foreseason of a we foresee a season when the menacing foxes that threaten the vineyards that spoil the wine of the sweetness of life are on the run and gone for good. The fruit of this harvest is abundant and sumptuous. Here, we witness the reversal of the battle of the sexes, the curse born of sin, of the rupture of the one flesh that was once Adam and Eve, words once of separation, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, are eclipsed in this garden by invocations of mutuality as this woman declares to this man and him to her, I am my beloved's and he is mine. His desire is for me. The most treasured vignettes from all across the scriptures, the most treasured vignettes across the scriptures of the Lord's promise to redeem and restore his people and his creation are restaged here in the Song of Songs. The vineyards of Jeremiah, the banquet table of, of Isaiah, the bridal chamber of Hosea, the green pastures of the psalmist, they're all here in a handful of love notes. A handful of love notes. You and I receive the gospel revelation of the cosmic reconciliation God is bringing to be. Heaven on earth where all is made new and everything is shared together in a fellowship of glad affection. 
you haven't seen it before, I hope that you're starting to see it now. The Song of Songs isn't just an affirmation of human love. It's so much more than that. Deep within the passionate and stirring cries of rapturous delight between the man and woman of this song, we hear echoes of something even greater, even higher than romantic love. We hear echoes of the divine love of God. After all, the very love we seek, the love we hope to share with each other, is a gift from the Lord. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning, as he gave them to each other in marriage, it was God that created love. God who created love as we long for it, as we feel it, as we know it, as we experience it. And this transcendent, mysterious gift of love from our creator was always intended to lead us back to him. In the longing and discovery of these two lovers, in their steadfast commitment and celebration of each other, my friends, what we have also is a magnificent and beautiful description of what God intends his relationship to be with each of us. Think about those, that foundation that we laid. Romantic love is physical. Romantic love is total. Romantic love is mutual. Romantic love is exclusive. All of those things reflect in an even greater way our relationship with God. Our relationship with God, his love for us is physical. You don't think it's physical? What's the incarnation? He came down in the flesh to be with us, to touch us, so that he, we could be known by him. The love that we have from God is total. He gives everything of himself. He holds nothing back. He wants us to know him fully as we are fully known by him. The love of God is mutual, not mutual in that we are equals, but mutual in the sense that God puts the treasure of his love, of his presence, of his image in jars of clay like us. We are ambassadors, representatives of his love. We speak for the Lord. We reflect who he is in his character. He has entrusted us with that. And the love of God is exclusive. Our God is a God who is a jealous God, we are told in Scripture, and now perhaps we understand it. He wants us to love no one else the way that he is to be loved because he loves us above all else. There are to be no other gods before him. Our relationship is to be exclusive. It's not supposed to be God shares time with other things because only God is worthy, only God is deserving of the love that we seek, the primary love that we seek. My friends, within and yet beyond our human expression of intimacy, in other words, what we experience beyond that, within it, is the presence of a God who woos us, who calls us, who invites us, who commits himself to us so that we can experience the depths of his love for us. This isn't just a song about the marriage of a man and a woman. This is the analog to the love between the ultimate bridegroom and bride, the Lord and his people. I told you last week, this book is so risque, this book is so controversial, it was, has almost been excluded from the canon of the Bible twice. Do you wanna know why the rabbis couldn't let it go of old before there was a New Testament? Do you wanna know after the New Testament was written why it wasn't let go? Because in the midst of maybe not being able to deal with how just raw and transparent and honest it is about human relationships of love, marriage, and sex, there was no way to get around, no way to deny that within that, even deeper in there, was a reflection of God's desire, of his love, of the relationship he seeks to have with us. To pull this book out of our Bibles is to pull the very heart out of the gospel. The metaphor of marriage for the relationship between God and his people is, is not just found in the Song of Songs. It's attested to in several biblical books. 
In fact, when the Lord first made his covenant with the nation of Israel, do you remember this? We've been through the story this past year. When the Lord first made his covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, he described that relationship. He framed it. He spoke of it in terms of a marriage. And when Israel was repeatedly unfaithful, God, through the prophet Hosea, do you remember this from this year when we went through the story? When Israel was repeatedly unfaithful, God, through the prophet Hosea, expressed both her disloyalty and yet his unwavering devotion through the example of marriage. Fast forward to a part of the story we haven't gotten to yet. Much later, in reflecting upon the love of God expressed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, suddenly has this epiphany, this insight, where he says, human marriage exists so the world will understand the relationship between God and his people. The new covenant between Christ as the bridegroom and his bride, the body of believers, the church. And if that's not enough for you, turn all the way to the very end of the book, to the very last pages of our Bible, to Revelation chapter 19, and read of John's vision of the homecoming of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom of God as being described as what? The greatest wedding celebration of all time, the ultimate marriage feast. Get the picture? Song of Songs is like one of those pictures you look at, you know, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, I see it. And then someone goes, yeah, but what about this? And you go, oh, I see that. But what do we do with it? What do we do with this added, deeper insight from the Song of Songs? And it's simply this. Here's the takeaway. It's just one thing. The takeaway is this. Our first love is God. Our first love is God. Jesus is to be your first love and mine. Remember the great commandment? Isn't this interesting now, And what I just said, when you hear now the great commandment, what was the great commandment? The great commandment, Jesus says, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the reason why that's called the great commandment, the first and greatest commandment, is because out of that flows everything else. Including, if you remember the next part, loving your neighbor as yourself. In other words, when Jesus is our first love, all of our other loves are healthy and flourish. When our love for Christ comes first, we can reflect that love in all of our other relationships. Being loved by Christ, that Christ being our first love frees us from selfishness and insecurity. Letting Christ be our first love gives us the power to purify, to ennoble, to lift another, to lift them so that they can see and know themselves and to be cherished beyond measure. They're not threatening to us. They're not, we're not concerned about them because our first love is in Christ. When Christ is our first love, we can make it safe for another to stand, to stand undressed, transparent, body and soul, to stand bearing all of who they are, who they are becoming in Christ, to stand before the world and to not be afraid. When Christ is our first love. But when we put other loves before God, when we put other loves before Christ, hear this, we are asking, we are demanding those other things, be they experiences or even other relationships, we are asking those experiences, those relationships to bear an impossible burden, a burden only Jesus can bear. Because here's the thing, all of our human relationships, as good as they are, as great as they are, all of them are always in the process of growing or becoming. 
They're always in the process of growing and becoming. If you still have your Bible open, the very last verses, all the way at the end of chapter 8, you notice, I hope, the open-ended ending of the Song of Songs. Not to take away from the joy, the delight, the consummation that takes place, but notice at the end of Song of Songs, the two lovers, while still together, still perceive separation between them and remain in pursuit of each other. They seek to discover and encounter each other even more deeply. Because here's the thing, on this side of heaven, my friends, we never fully know each other. We never fully know each other, and we are never fully known by each other. We are always left wanting more in our relationships. And that's why Christ has to be our first love, because he's the only one who fully knows us. And in him, we are fully known. I'll apply this in terms of what Song of Songs talks about, and I'll, I'll bring tease this out, what I'm saying, in terms of marriage. The first service, this was an interesting response. Let's see yours. What the Song of Songs, as great as it is, reminds us in pointing us to the higher love of God is that there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Late-breaking newsflash, answers to all of our problems are not found in marriage. Marriage actually creates more challenges than resolving all of them. I'm not saying that with any frustration. I'm happy to be married. But it creates more challenges than resolving all of them. Marriage is work. Marriage is work, and it's a work that's fulfilling. Hear this. Marriage is work, but it's a work that's fulfilling not when two halves of a person become one, seeking for the other to save or define them. No, marriage is work that is fulfilling when two who know who they are in Christ, who trust they have been saved by Jesus, become one in experiencing and sharing that divine love with each other. That being said, and this is an important part of this sermon for me, given I said there were two parts. Last week I mentioned, I may not cover everything this week, I may talk about it next week, and I had a lot of people who came up and said, you didn't say anything to people who are single. I'm single. That sermon sucked. I'm not married. I, maybe I don't want to be married. Maybe I do and I'm not. That sermon was painful and I want to acknowledge. I, I knew that going in. I, I had to break this into two parts and I am sorry for any pain that I caused. And I want to talk now to those of you who are single because something you need to hear, something we need to say as the church is marriage, while wonderful, and marriage can be wonderful, marriage is not the end-all, be-all of all relationships. We can experience God's love in other relationships. But before I even talk about that, as a married person, I want to acknowledge, I want to recognize, and I don't think we say this enough in the church, I want to acknowledge something that I do think sucks, and that much of our society is structured around couples. It's often assumed that adults have a partner and that there's something rather odd about them if they don't for any period of time. We who are married, who find ourselves fortunate enough to be married, who choose to be married, fail to remember or recognize that all singles are not alike, that there are circumstantial differences. Some have never married. Some are divorcees, widows or widowers. There are experiential differences, too. Some have chosen to be single and are basically content. Others long to be married and feel frustrated. And those of us who are married, we can become insensitive to those who are single and don't want to be. We forget 
Maybe we never knew how lonely and discouraging that road can be, especially the longer it goes on. And I want to speak particularly to those of you who find yourselves on that road. I want you to hear something that we, I don't know if we've ever said in the church. I've never heard it said, but it needs to be not only said, but said repeatedly. And it's this. Singleness is not second-class citizenship. Singleness is not second-class citizenship. There can be beauty and worth to the single life. Jesus was single. And his life demonstrates how deep, meaningful intimacy, even if one is not married, is still possible within friendships. Paul was single too. And isn't that interesting? The two primary voices in our New Testament, Jesus and Paul, were both single. Paul was single too. And Paul's life reveals how there can be closeness and tender union in serving others and in serving together. Still, in saying that, I, I still recognize, I, I, don't, I don't stop there because I understand when you're longing not to be single, it can be hard to wait. You start to be afraid you'll never get married. You start to wonder if God really hears your prayers. And I want to acknowledge the reality of that pain. I want to say I'm sorry if that's where you find yourself, if you've been on that road just a couple of weeks or a couple of years. But I also want to say to you, in the midst of acknowledging your pain and your struggle, I want you to say from this book that even if you're single, you are still chosen and beloved of Christ. You are still chosen and beloved of Christ. And I don't say this to be trite, and I don't say this not as a, just an just offhanded statement, but you... In knowing you are chosen and beloved of Christ, you can believe that he does know the desires of your heart. Don't stop trusting him. Keep your future in his hands rather than taking your love life into your own hands. Don't let, in other words, waiting lead to wandering with your heart or with your body. I shared, and I'm not going to repeat it, a pastoral experience that I've had in my years in ministry, and now I want to share another one that is just very practical to this. I have just heard, I have sat down, I have encountered too many stories of single persons who in their loneliness and impatience became involved with relationships that brought them heartache and condemnation instead of communion. Don't compromise yourself just to be with another person. I don't say this lightly, I don't say this uncaringly, but if we can't handle our singleness, we'll never be able to handle marriage. If you're looking for someone to complete you, you'll always be disappointed. And if you're married right now and you got married because you thought he was gonna complete you, she was gonna complete you, or worse, that you were gonna complete them, <laughs> right? It's not funny. <laughs> It's not funny. <laughs> if you're looking for someone to complete you, you'll always be disappointed because no one can, no one will complete you. Don't ever say that or ask that of someone you love. My God, please stop making these romantic comedies where the ah moment is, you complete me. It's crap. <laughs> it's a lie. No one can or will fully, perfectly love you as you need to be loved. If you're married, you can look at your spouse right now if they're with you and recognize as great as that person is, wonderful, lovely, all these things, they cannot perfectly or fully love you as you need to be loved. I 
cannot, and it is hard for me to admit this, perfectly or fully love Beth, my children, you, as you need to be loved. And the reason for this is we're all sinners. We're all broken people. Forgiven, yes, yes. Forgiven, yes. But we are still in the process of becoming saints, fully healed and made whole. The only one who can perfectly and fully love us is Jesus Christ. And that is why he has to be your first love and mine. My friends, if our greatest need, if our ultimate desire is to know and to be known, to be safe and secure, to experience unconditional love and unending joy, we need to recognize, we need to depend, we need to look to and trust the one who gave us that desire in the first place, our creator, our father, our God. Everything else in all creation can be, will be, may be used by God to satisfy that desire, but we can't lose sight of Christ as the one who still knows us, who came to die to redeem every part of us, who through the twists and turns of our lives does complete us, who in the midst of our unrequited longings, our unacknowledged hurts and our lingering fears lovingly can and will make us whole. As we finish, we could, I could preach for weeks on this book. It would be interesting if the church would get more full or less if I did. <laughs> But as we close the Song of Songs and move on, the Song of Songs for me is just a powerful reminder that it is not Jesus' moral values or religious beliefs that keeps the church alive. It's not even his preaching or his stories that empower us most. It's not the miracles he performed or the signs that he gave that keep us going It is his love. Faith, hope, and love, the Apostle Paul writes. But the greatest of these, he ends with, is love. That love, his love, God's everlasting love, is what the Song of Songs dares us to believe in. This love that the woman alludes to near the end of this song, the love, you remember, that's like a fire that blazes so hot and strong, many rivers cannot douse it, a love that is so potent and uplifting, it refuses to yield to the grave. We know this love. We've beheld it. This is the divine love of Christ, a love indeed stronger than death, a love that rises from the tomb, a love that gives us the dawn of a new day and eternal tomorrow. So beloved, and I use that word a lot, you remind me of it often. It's my phrase that pays, beloved. You know why? Because it's true, that is what you and I are. Beloved, let yourself be wooed by the gospel through the Song of Songs. Let us together discover our God is not a disapproving prude, but the greatest of all romantics, one who desires and longs for us, who pursues us tenderly but relentlessly, who delights in giving all of himself so that we can be together forever. Let us celebrate this love, savor it, a love not just for those who are wed or for those who seek to be married, but for all persons, single, widowed, young or old, male or female, for all who are willing to say before, before the proposal of this God, this lover, I do. Let's share this love we have been given with a spouse, a partner, a child, a parent, a friend, a neighbor, 
a stranger, maybe even an enemy. For when we lay down our lives to love others in the name of Jesus, when we lose our lives to serve each other, we find them. We become one flesh, bound together by the love of God that goes beyond the bounds of time, beyond the limits of our experience, and takes us into life everlasting. Amen.